Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, so uh, so recently, Emily was having a bad day. You guys ever have bad days? Is this not on? Is this on? Is it on? Hello? Hello? Is that good? Recently, Emily was having a bad day. And uh, you guys have probably experienced this before where you, you cast a vision. Maybe you have a hopeful experience. You cast a vision of what your future is going to look like because of this hopeful news, maybe. Um, and then that thing doesn't become a reality. Anybody ever experienced that before? Cast a vision, hope is a reality, and hope disappoints in that regard. Like, you, you thought this vision was going to become a reality, it doesn't become a reality, hope disappoints. Uh, Paul, Paul actually said to the Romans in chapter 5 of Romans, he said that there is a hope that does not disappoint. There's a hope that does not disappoint. It's the, it's the future that God has cast for us in, his through, in and through his son Jesus Christ. There's a hope that does not disappoint. But, but sometimes our hope disappoints, right? We cast a vision, it disappoints, it doesn't come through. Our hope disappoints. Create sad days. And so put yourself in my shoes as the husband of a wife who is saddened, okay? So what do you do? Like, okay, so you, um, obviously, obviously you, you call her throughout the day and you, maybe, maybe you even go home for lunch to console her and to comfort her and to be near her and to be in her presence. Certainly, you, uh, you bring her flowers, chocolate maybe, on the way home. Yeah, I did none of those things, okay? <laughs> I did none of those things. I was fully aware that she was having a bad day, but I was caught up at work, I was busy, I was doing things, and I didn't... <laughs> I could keep going about how bad I, I did that day, but I'm going to throw myself under the bus here. I sucked at being a loving husband that day. And, and here's the thing, I could justify my behavior, right? I had a long day. It was, it was a hard day. I had a lot on my mind. I was trying to get a lot accomplished. We're really actually, I think, really good at justifying our behavior. But I realized when I got home from work, with her help, it's an important part of this, with her, you can, you can interpret that however you want to interpret that. With her help, I realized that I had kind of failed at being a, a loving husband that day. And I want to look at this scenario from both the perspective of the offender me and the offendee, the person who is being offended. Now, Emily, from the side of the one being wronged, had two options as to what to do with me. She could choose resentment. Resentment is an option she had. She could hold this against me. She could store it away in a filing cabinet with all the other times that I failed to meet her expectations. And when we do this, we tend to feel justified in treating each other harshly because we keep focusing on all the harm that the other person has done to us over the years. And so we feel justified. Look how thick and wide the filing cabinet is. There's so many files in here. I'm justified in holding this over their head. I'm justified in using this against them. Now, rarely, if you think of how relationships eventually you know, break apart, rarely does someone in a relationship wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm filing for a divorce today. Rarely does anybody just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm done. This is, this is over. No, it's what it is. It's, it's one little thing after another. And they store those things away in a filing cabinet and they build it up over time, over time, over time, little by little by little. They build these mounds, these huge mounds of resentment against 
one another. And in time, right, the filing cabinet can only hold so much. And so in time, you just try to stuff one more in there and it just blows up and it just explodes. Some of you have been there before. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the other thing that she could do is to extend grace. She could choose to forgive me. Now, the challenge with grace is that it feels like enablement. It feels like I'm permitting the behavior that actually hurt me. And so I want to dissect grace for us briefly this morning and see where grace dissecting it might lead us. Paul wrote this to the Galatians. He said, whenever someone is hurt in a relationship or whenever that sin is present, the person at fault is imprisoned to sin. The sin is like a prison around us. Some of you know this. Some of you are actually more maybe willing to admit this than others. Some of you carry around a lot of weight. Some of you carry around a lot of guilt. Some of you carry around all the things that you have done and all the things that people have said about you over the years and all the things that you participated in over the years and, and you've done some really bad things and so you carry that with you and it's a weight and it's a prison. Some of you feel this. It's important to feel that weight and the burden. Actually, that weight and that burden upon things that we do wrong, it's a gift. God called it enmity. It's something he gave Adam and Eve at the very, very beginning. I want you to feel the consequence of your sin. It's a gift. But really, aren't there only two things that you can do with the gift? We talked about this already in the worship session. We, we talked about this, how when you receive a gift, you can either just leave it unwrapped or you can just leave it wrapped up on the table. I don't have to accept it. I can just leave it there. It's a gift offered to me. I don't need to accept it. Or you can unwrap the gift and you can enjoy its contents. You see, grace is always going to confront sin with a choice of freedom. That's what grace does. Naturally, it confronts sin with the choice of freedom. And so grace, in in a lot of ways, is like a key, right? You're imprisoned. Grace comes to you and offers you a key. So the offender can either resent, uh, resent or forgive. And when they choose to forgive, the offender has two responses as grace approaches us with a key. The reception of grace will do two things to us, one of two things. It's either going to harden us or it's going to humble us. And that's a choice that I get to make as to what grace is going to do in me. Will grace harden me or will grace humble me? I will either defend my behavior and say things like, Emily, it's not that big of a deal. Why, why are you making such a big deal out of this? I mean, you know what? I had a hard day too. Why, why aren't you concerned about how my day went? <laughs> Isn't that funny how we always turn to turn the tables back on us and then in so doing, we actually take the conversation away from the original conversation? We could defend, we could blame shift, we could justify, we could deny And we'll look at this key that's offered us and we'll say, what is this for? I'm not imprisoned. And we'll look at this key that grace offers us and we'll say, what is this for? I'm not in jail. I'm not shackled. It's not my fault. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's not that big of a deal. You see, when grace calls out our wrong, we can harden ourselves. But here's the thing. Grace can only stick to our imperfections. Grace can only transform imperfections. And if we fail to recognize or believe that we have imperfections because we constantly deny or justify or conceal our behavior, if we deny that we're sinners, then grace cannot stick to us and grace then cannot do what grace is intended to do. Grace cannot transform us if we do not acknowledge and own the fact that we are actually in the wrong. See, the other response to grace is to humble ourselves. I can accept fault. But for grace to not be enabling, it must admit and agree to what I have done. And what I have done hurt, Emily. What I did sucked, right? I was a poor husband in that day. 
And I had to own that, and I had to recognize that there was a prison then around me that grace was coming to unlock. I had to accept the key, and I had to walk free. It's, it's the introspection and the acknowledgement that my sin has actually caused a lot of problems. It's the introspection and the acknowledgement that my sin had broken our relationship. And for Emily, you know, not offering me this key, I could take the key, acknowledging it and owning it, and then it would liberate me. It would restore and reconcile our relationship. But then my responsibility is not just to take this key and turn around and walk back into the prison. And the next day when her, you know, when her hopes are dashed to the ground and she's in sorrow, go and say, well, you know what? I'm just going to do the same thing over again. That's when grace becomes enabling. You just allow the same behavior over and over and over and over again. When that person doesn't accept that key and be transformed by that key and walk free, when I take that key and I'm free and I'm liberated and I turn around and I walk right back into that prison, I have a choice as to what to do with the grace that is offered me. Paul said that God's kindness and lavish grace is intended to lead us to repentance. It's intended to change us. So grace is meant to transform us. It is actually God's transformative agent. He is what he has given us to make us more like his son, Jesus. And so now when Emily looks at me, she doesn't resent me. And I'm not going to walk around right back into the prison I've made. I'm committed now to loving her more because she extended grace to me. I accepted the key that she offered me. I walked humbly out of the prison and I've committed then to loving her better in the future. That's how grace and humility work in relationship. Today we are in part five of a 13-week walkthrough of the life and teachings of Jesus. We're calling the series Jesus for Grown-Ups. <clears throat> a lot of people, I think, have a children's Bible understanding of Jesus. And it's funny because we, we take our children's Bible and then we place them next to the Little Mermaid and the Beauty and the Beast and you know all these other children's fairy tales. And we're like... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like Jesus, he was a good guy and all, but you know, it's it's right alongside all these other fairy tales, and it's very fairy tale like. And so I'm just going to dismiss the Bible because I've dismissed all these fairy tales. You know, I, I don't really think that there are mermaids who live in the ocean who sing songs and they, you know, fight octo, oct, octopi, octo, octopuses in the ocean, right? Who steal their voice? I don't really believe the the story of the Little Mermaid happened in real life, and yet the Bible is sitting right next to it. And so, do I really have to believe Noah in the Ark? Do I really have to believe Jonah in the whale? Do I really have to believe Jesus in the resurrection? And so, you know, we're, we're challenged to look at Jesus from a grown-up perspective and see why he matters for us and what he did and what he taught and, and to, to see how it's going to change us today. And so, we're going to look at his very first teaching. What did Jesus say when he got in front of crowds, you know, like this, much larger crowds than this? What did Jesus have to say? What was Jesus talking about? But before we get there, I want to offer you a brief history lesson. As the Israelites are leaving Egypt, you guys remember the story at the very beginning of the Exodus? The youth are going to go watch Moses, the story about how they're leaving Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea, they make their way to Sinai, and at Sinai they receive the law. And the law was really just the instructions on what it means to be rightly human, the law, if you were to boil it down, Jesus did this, Paul did this, was to love God and to love others. This is what it means to be in relationship with God. And if you stay in covenant with God, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he told them. You will be a light to the Gentiles as you mediate to the world who God is. And the sign or the agreement was the Sabbath day. 
Now, a sign was just a, a, a something that you do regularly, a, a physical reminder that you are in this relationship. And so every time that we take communion, for instance, it is the sign of the new covenant, right? We are remembering that we are in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so the sign is just a physical reminder that, that we are to, to follow the instructions that God has given us. And the sign that God gave the Israelites way back at Sinai was the Sabbath day. A day to put work and progress aside and to remember that we're creatures and that we're responsible and responsible to God. It was a day to reflect on the love of God, to tell the stories and to remember what God has accomplished in the past and to talk about what loving God and loving others means as we commit then to loving God and to following the law. So every seven days you are to break from progress and work and you are to lean into God. That's what the Sabbath day was, right? Every seven days, the seventh day. For them it was Saturday. Now, we don't get how bonkers of an idea this was because we live in a world with weekends. We live in a world with shelf life and preservatives within our food. But in their day, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. If you didn't gather, you didn't have. And so what do you do on that seventh day? Are are we supposed to just starve? Like, what are we supposed to do? If we don't work every day of the week, then we're not going to eat. What are you supposed to do? And God said, my friends, if you trust me, I will provide for you enough on the sixth day so that you will have plenty left over for the seventh day. The Sabbath, in other words, was just a little test of trust. That's it. Just a little test of trust. Okay, so no big deal. Even if God, even even if God doesn't come through and provide us all the food we need, we can go one day without eating. It's not that big of a deal, okay? We can do this. It's not the end of the world. No biggie. And so God looked at the Israelites and he upped the game a little bit. And he said, okay, okay, well, Sabbath wasn't just for the people. It was, it was for creation. And so he said, after you realize that I provided you for 312 Sabbaths, after the end of six years of being provided for every seventh day, and you've seen that I've been faithful each and every time, I want you to take the seventh year off. I want it to be a sabbatical year. The land is to remain fallow and the land is to rest. I don't want you to harvest. I don't want you to plant. I just want you to live off the land and how it is. And we're like, whoa, God, so an entire year now? Okay, I can do one day, right? If I go hungry for a day, no big deal. Okay, I got this. This isn't just a little test of trust, God. This is a huge test of trust. That's crazy. But here's what God says regarding the Sabbath year. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. You will eat from the old crops and you will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. But the Israelites were like, I don't know, God, that's a lot of trust. Uh, You're not just asking us to go hungry for a day if you don't follow through. You're talking about life and death now to go hungry for a year starvation is possible right we can't sustain ourselves for an entire year and not to progress for a year i mean that's a lot of lost exports that's a lot of lost wages that's a lot of lost income that's a lot of progress that could have been had god that's a lot of trust and god said hold on friends i'm not finished i want you also to honor a sabbatical of sabbaticals At the end of seven Sabbath years, I want you to pronounce a year of jubilee. I want you to make it a party. I want you to get out the trumpets. I want you to get out the party planners. I want this to be a celebration throughout all of the land. Every 50 years, I want you to announce freedom throughout the land. Freedom throughout the land. Each of you is to return to your own property. All the slaves are to be set free. All the slaves are to go home. All debts are to be canceled. This is restored community. This is new creation. This is radical grace offered for slaves. 
for prisoners, for those in debt. I want me and people to know, to be known by radical, extravagant grace. So radical that it shouts craziness to the world. So radical that it liberates prisoners. So radical that it cancels every day. It's so radical that it frees everyone who accepts it to be transformed and renewed and restored. I want you to announce the year of my favor. Announce a jubilee throughout the land. And now the people are thinking, God, you are crazy. That's insane, God. God, that's not how the world works. God, that's not how society thrives. God, that will be enabling. God, that's irresponsible. I mean, it, it's, it's great for the ones in debt, isn't it? I mean, come on, let's think about that for a minute. For those of us in debt a little bit, how great would it be for God to announce a year of jubilee where all debts are canceled? It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? It's great for the prisoner. It's great for the slave. But, but who's going to lose from this pattern of life? It's going to be the slave owners, the bankers, the wealthy, the established, those in power, those on top of society, those in the position of power have a lot to lose. A complete reset every 50 years? Are you crazy? That much grace is absurd. That much grace would cost too much. That much grace is irresponsible. That much grace would take too much trust. That much grace would require we trust that God provides above and beyond what we could possibly provide for ourselves. It would require us to believe that God's ways of doing things as backwards and as odd as they seem are actually the healthiest, most productive way of doing things. And, and, and who believes that? That God's ways are best? Who believes that? That God's ways are healthiest? Who believes that? That God's ways are most productive? Who believes that? If I'm honest, you know, I don't know if I have that much trust. Your ways, God, they feel upside down. They feel backwards. So, you know what? We're just going to keep doing things our way. Yeah, you know, my enemy came to me the other day, and he was so smug, and he was so pompous. And, you know, we started a squabble. And instead of diffusing the argument with kindness and with self-control and with civility, I punched him. And things were said, and things were thrown, and things were broken. And I embarrassed my children. My wife doesn't even want to speak to me anymore. Yeah, well, you know what? My wife and I met the other day to talk about our finances. Instead of talking about the books and her situation, I just made a ton of assumptions and I blamed her and then she accused me and so I deflected the accusations back at her and we started yelling and we solved nothing. But you know what we did? We built up a lot of resentment. We, we stuffed that filing cabinet real thick and real tight. And now I just don't want to look at each other. And the kids feel the tension, and they'll probably become just like us. And yeah, you know, the rainforests are important, but toilet paper demands their decimation. (laughs) And Walmarts demand that we destroy them. You don't expect me to change my habits to care for the earth, do you? That sounds crazy, God. And come on, what, sex only in the context of marriage? I mean, who does that? No, it feels good, it feels right, no one's going to know. I mean, the chance of any consequence is small. She's not going to get pregnant. No, I won't be bound to this person forever because of the child that we create. My future relationships, they're not going to be affected by this one night stand. It's not going to do anything to me psychologically. It's not going to do anything to me emotionally. God's way of doing things, they're old fashioned. And come on, like we know best. 
We know what's healthiest. We know what's best. We've lived long enough to know that we're doing this thing pretty well. All of our relationships are perfect. All of our marriages are perfect. All of our finances are in perfect shape. All of our households are in perfect order. All our kids are angels. And I think we should just keep doing things our way because we know what is best. See, God has instructions on being human that we abandoned long ago. And we scoff at this suggestion that maybe God's way is healthier, that maybe God's way is more productive. And as far as we can tell, the Israelites never obeyed a single Sabbath year. And therefore, they never experienced the year of Jubilee. They never announced the year of Jubilee because they never experienced the Sabbath year. And early on, they even didn't even experience the Sabbath day. And the reason they went into exile for 70 years was so that the land could finally experience its Sabbath rests. If you know the story of the people of Israel, they rarely even tried to follow God's ways, which is why the Old Testament is so bleak and depressing. And so when Jesus steps on the pages of history retelling Israel's story, here's what we learn. Once Jesus steps out of the wilderness and begins teaching, Matthew sums up his message with this. Repent. Here's the entire message of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Change your ways because the king is returning. Now, it was assumed that when God returned his people to his people, he would just create a dividing line in history. And so everybody on this side of the dividing line would, would be, would, you know, all the, all the oppressive pagan people who were wicked and evildoers, they would be destroyed, and God would save the good and faithful Israelites. That was God. God comes as king. He puts a dividing line in history, destroys all the wicked people, saves all the self-righteous Israelites. The king is returning with wrath, and we, the people of Israel, are going to sit back and watch him destroy the world. That was the Jewish expectation of what God was going to do when the king returned. But according to Jesus, that's not how the king was returning. We can pick up the story in Luke's gospel, chapter four. Jesus heads home to Nazareth and news about Jesus is spreading fast because he's been healing sick and he's been turning water into wine. And so he just, he's gathering huge crowds all around him. People are excited for what God is doing and what Jesus is doing. And so he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Remember, the Sabbath day was the day required just a little bit of trust. But it was the first in a chain of events that was going to require an enormous amount of trust. He stood up to read, we're told. It was common for guest rabbis in their day to be handed a scroll or to receive a scroll, to ask for a scroll and give commentary or instruction on, on the word of the day. And so the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He asked specifically for the scroll of Isaiah. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and a recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. So come on, Rabbi, give us your commentary. What do you have to say about this portion of Isaiah's text? And Jesus says this, Today, today, upon your hearing, this prophetic word has been fulfilled. <laughs> They're all just looking at him with like a blank stare, like what? What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Today I am proclaiming the year of Jubilee. Today I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. 
I have good news. All the prisoners are to be set free. All debts are to be erased. All sickness is to be healed. I am proclaiming freedom throughout the land. I have come to announce that this is the year of Jubilee, and in me is the fulfillment of this proclamation. I am the embodiment of the year of Jubilee. And everybody is looking at him, and they are astonished. And then everybody began to comment, and this, this word comment is um, uh, martyrio in the Greek. It's the word we get the martyr from. It it's, can have very hostile undertones. Everyone began shouting. Everyone stood up from, from their seats, and there was a buzz about the room, and people are getting up, and they're getting heated, and they start to shout. They were astonished at the words coming out of his mouth, words of sheer grace. No, the king is returning in judgment, Jesus. No, the king is returning to condemn sinners. He is not coming to extend grace, this amount of grace. Who is this man? I mean, what authority does this guy have to speak in? Isn't, isn't he just Joseph's son? He's just a carpenter. He's not a rabbi. Who is this guy? And Jesus says, well, you know what? I know what you're going to say. You're saying, you're going to tell me the old riddle. Heal yourself, heal yourself doctor. We heard of great happenings in Capernaum. Do them here in your own country. Come on, Jesus. We invited you here so that you could do some magic tricks. Come on, Jesus. We invited you here so that you would do some fancy show. You would do some magic deeds and mighty deeds for the sake of show. And yet you come here announcing the year of the Lord's favor. You come here announcing the year of Jubilee. You come here with extravagant grace. So Jesus responds, you know, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Elijah didn't go to the Jewish people. Elijah helped the commander of the invading army. Whoa, you know, Israel's God, he's saving all the wrong people. He's saving all the pagans. He's saving all the sinners. These people were waiting for God to return as king to liberate Israel from these pagan forces and destroy sinners and evildoers. There was a longing that God would come in wrath and pour out destruction and judgment on the wicked and usher in Israel's golden age. That's what the people were longing for. And yet Jesus approaches and he says, you know, the prophets of old were active. It was the pagans who benefited. It was the pagans who were humble enough to receive the word of the prophet, not the Israelites. It was the sinners who received the radical grace of God. And Jesus here is announcing it again. Sinners are going to receive the radical grace of God. And they were astonished. The people were astonished at the sheer grace that he was proclaiming. Sheer radical grace, the year of jubilee, forgiveness for everybody. Not wrath, not destruction for Israel's enemies. Not salvation only for the Jews. Forgiveness for everybody. The year of Jubilee is at hand. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. These Jews listening and did not want a message of grace for sinners, a radical message of grace for their enemies. They didn't see how desperately they needed the message themselves. 
they didn't want a jubilee, right? They thought that was absurd. That much grace is ridiculous. That much grace is nonsense. It's just enabling people. But remember, just because God offers radical grace does not mean that people accept God's radical grace to the point where it does what radical grace is supposed to do because he offers it. And every one of us, a key to our prisons doesn't mean that we are receptive of the key that he is offering us. See, when God comes near to cancel our debt, many will say, what debt? When God comes near to open the doors of our prison cells, many of us are going to say, what prison cell? Friends, grace only sticks to our imperfections. And this is why the year of Jubilee is good news for sinners, not for the self-righteous. This is why the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit, to the humble, to the sinner. And grace has the power then, my friends, to do amazing things. The reason that Emily and I can walk in our relationship restored and reconciled, even after so many instances throughout the last nearly 19 years of our marriage where we could have stuffed a filing cabinet full, full of faults, is because we have been met with such an enormous grace. And only then can we extend that grace to others. Grace has the power to transform you, and not only that, it has the power to transform your friends through you. I want to give you a little illustration as I invite the band forward. We're going to sing one final song together as we close out our time. But I want to give you a little illustration. This bucket is kind of like God's grace. You can all see this? It's a lot of grace, right? There's a lot of grace here. And this really, really darkened vial over here represents me. See how dark this one is compared to this one? That's an important that's an important thing to remember because this one represents all you, okay? And every one of you could hold this, okay? You you could all hold this, and this would be true of all of you. We need to take this perspective that I am the chief of all sinners. I am a worse sinner than all of you, and I don't know what you've all done, but I guarantee you what I've done is worse. And now in the eyes of men, that may not be true, but in my own perspective of who I am before God, my sin is worse than yours. Your sin isn't nearly as bad as mine. And so here's the thing. When we receive God's grace, right, we, we, we dip into this, to this bucket of God's grace. And sometimes, you know, we receive grace and, and grace, we get this key and, and it only makes the problem worse. It didn't do anything to transform me, right? Because grace doesn't have to transform us. It's offered to every single one of us, but we have a choice in allowing it to transform us or not. But here, here's, the, here's the beautiful thing. Sometimes if you, are, if you are willing, if you are allowing for God's grace to transform you, if you're humble enough right, to, to receive God's grace, if you're humble enough to acknowledge it and to own it and to admit that you need a Savior, then God's grace can begin to do amazing things in your life to purify you. And then not only that, right? Because when we receive this grace, right? When we receive the enormity of grace, go back and read Matthew 18 at some point this week when you get a chance. Jesus tells this incredible story about this guy who just received so much grace. His debt was so large and yet the king forgave him his debt. And then he turned to his neighbor who owed him just a little bit and he refused to forgive his neighbor. 
Here's the amazing thing, right? We, we have this opportunity now to, to go and to restore other people and to purify them through the grace that we have been given. Oh my goodness, friends, we have such an incredible gospel to share with the world that we have been forgiven of such innumerable sins. Sins that are tearing your relationships apart. Sins that are tearing your households apart. Sins that are tearing your own individual hearts apart. And yet we have been met with such an incredible grace. And we can do two, one of two things with this. Well, we, can either, we can either reject it. We can say, what, what problem? I'm not, in need of, I'm not in need of salvation. I'm not in need of... I don't, I'm not in a prison. I don't have any debt. But for those of us who have eyes to see, who can acknowledge that my sin is so deep and my heart is so darkened, we can receive this grace and it can do a transformative work in us. We're forgiven. The year of Jubilee has already been pronounced. Jesus has done it. All debts have been set free. All prisoners can be released. All debts have been erased. Why are you still living in a cage? Why are you still allowing your, your own self, selfish, sinful nature to destroy your marriage and destroy your household and destroy your neighborhoods? I pray for humility on each of us. Heavenly Father, I do ask, I do ask that you would, you would humble us. If we cannot humble ourselves, Father, humble us so that we might receive this grace, this pronouncement that the year of Jubilee is at hand. And let then this reception of grace do a work in us, transform us and change us so that we might walk free out of this cage, not to turn right back into it and say, thanks God for the grace. I guess I can live whatever kind of life I want and I'm always going to be forgiven. That's enabling. I do not want that. That is going to solve nothing in my marriage. It'll solve nothing in my household. It'll solve nothing in my own heart. But may we receive this grace, God, and take it and let it do its transformative work. Let our prison doors be swung open and let us walk freely and joyously. For we, the worst of all sinners, have been forgiven. And then, Father, when we come across someone who is in need of grace, we'll have an abundance to pour out upon them and to change them as well. And so, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the grace you have been given to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're going to sing a final song to conclude our time together. You can use it as a prayer, you can use it, you can stand, you can take whatever posture you feel like you need to this morning. But let's conclude with this as we celebrate what God has done and pouring out his grace and declaring the year of Jubilee.